I shared last week that in preparation for the Saturday night service, the Lord took me to a portion of the book of Isaiah, and when I read it, I was just overcome. And yesterday, in preparation for our service last night and again this morning, I read the opening chapters in the book of Ezekiel, and I want to share those now, or a few verses. Ezekiel has the privilege of seeing and vision of the glory of God, and he searches for words. He, he can't even find words in the language to, to capture how glorious God is. And so he says, and above the expanse over their heads, there was the likeness of a throne in appearance, like sapphire, and seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, the appearance. So he's using words like appearance and like appearance of fire, and there was brightness around him. Like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face. Friends, we need to see God as big and mighty and glorious and so appreciative of the songs that we sang today to remind us of who God is and what he's doing for his glory. In John chapter 5, Jesus says, I and the Father are always at work. And sometimes we get to see it. So last Sunday, during our 9 o'clock service, we ran out of parking spaces. And Marie Guyton, sitting down here in the front, was coming in the south door. Someone was walking in with her, and this other person said to Marie, is there something special going on today? (laughs) Actually, there was something special going on in all three services. We had Pastor Dan and a team out in the parking lot during our 9 o'clock service to make sure we could help people. And how many of you attended the Faith and Reason seminar yesterday? Yeah, look at the hands that went up. Incredible. And a seminar on apologetics, what we believe, why we believe it, and how we can communicate it to those who don't believe it. I had this overwhelming just sense of worship and a desire to witness after that. So last weekend, at the end of our three services, a total, I didn't count, I couldn't count, several hundred people stood to indicate that they wanted to be saved or they were ready to fully surrender to Christ. We encouraged people to come forward and pick up a block of wood with Romans 12, 1 and 2 written on it. This was our preaching passage last weekend. And the blocks of wood represent the altar where we read in the Old Testament that the fire burned constantly and the priest put wood on the fire. And this was to remind us that God calls us to live surrendered lives, to offer our bodies as living sacrifices to the Lord. Uh, This week on Facebook, I encourage people to send pictures or post pictures of where they put their block of wood. And before I get to that, I just talked to somebody out in the lobby and he uh, works out. He goes to the fitness center and he brings his block of wood and he puts it on top of every machine he uses there. And he does that as a reminder of the decision he made last week, but also as a witnessing opportunity. He told me this week that he had a great conversation just because of this. So let me just point out, mine's on the bottom left there. I have it in my car by my speedometer so I don't speed. (laughs) Um, But you can see others have it. There's posted around the house. One's in a cupboard, uh, another one in a car, another one like on a dining room table. And if you want one of these, they're available out at the Welcome Center and the South Entrance, if that would help you remember a decision you made, or if you weren't here and you'd still like to pick one up as a reminder that God wants all of you, please uh, take one of those. 
920 adults and children gathered for week one of our series called Unshaken and Unashamed. This was our highest attendance since before COVID. Now, I'm sharing that not with any sense of pride. It is so humbling. God is doing something for his glory, and that was our highest attendance since way before COVID. And our our main idea last week was this, what you believe about God's word will determine how you view the world around you. I hope you got that. I hope you got that in your head, and I hope you're living that way, because if your view of the world does not come from God's word, Well then, by default, it will come from the world. We give God glory for the growth in all of our ministries, and I'm compelled to share this. I'm beginning the message differently, but I want to provide some space for us to give, well, to give glory to God and to celebrate what he's doing. Second Winders, our ministry to seniors, which meets twice a month, had 171 people in attendance on Thursday. The Second Winders Sunday growth group hit a high of 55 recently. During the 9 o'clock hour last weekend, our first through sixth graders used every chair we had. Sheila has requested more chairs to be set up. Over the last several weeks, get this, our nursery has been averaging 22 babies during the 9 o'clock service. And up until that point, our highest attendance was 20 on Mother's Day. This past weekend, there were 46 children in preschool. The three-year-old room is almost maxed out. And by the way, because of this growth, there is a significant need for more teachers and helpers. Now, let me just say, I I don't believe in using guilt to motivate people. (laughs) Why are you laughing? I really don't. Because here's why. If you're guilted into serving, you'll do it once and then you're done. So I'm not talking about guilt here. But I want, as one of your pastors, I want to tell you about a significant need we have. There are so many kids in the preschool and not enough teachers and helpers. And so I just think of all the people who stood last week. Perhaps the Lord has been prompting you to live out your decision to be fully surrendered to Christ through service here. And not everybody can serve or should serve with the preschool, but perhaps God's prompting you to do that. If we had eight new people step up and serve just once a month, we could meet that need. There's cards in front of you. You could write your name down and your interest on that. This past Wednesday night, Awana had 170 kids with 54 servants as we kicked off our 44th year. Are you aware we've had to purchase additional tables and chairs for our growing student ministry? And lest you think the students just play games and eat pizza, they just started a study in the book of Romans. Mainspring, our ministry to young adults, had 35 at their fall kickoff. They just completed a series on biblical theology. Approximately 100 people have been involved in intentional discipleship. There are several Bible studies for women taking place. Registration is now open for the fall retreat, October 6th and 7th. Around 100 men attended the men's barbecue. 70 were involved in the golf outing. Our men's ministry now has four Bible studies. 71 people attended Celebrate Recovery this past Friday. And one, yes, one men's 12-step group is getting ready to graduate. And two 12-steps groups for women are meeting weekly now. And we could use more people to help serve food. In our worship and tech area, Pastor Chad and Dave Bennett have designed and built a recording studio. And within the first month, they've already completed six projects, including a brand new 4G podcast. And then our care ministries are serving more and more people. Divorce care, eight people. Grief share, 18. Alzheimer's support had 11. I posted some thoughts this week on what God is doing here. And I began with this verse from John 3, 8. The wind blows 
where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Many people shared how the Holy Spirit blew through their lives during the services this past weekend. I have a list of 25 responses from last weekend. I'm just going to read a few. One person said, God is doing some new things in me. One person said, I had to leave early, so I stood and surrendered when I got home. (laughs) This person said, the sermon on Sunday really moved me. I did not stand up. However, the Holy Spirit was moving within me. This person said, it was the most moving service that I have been in in a long time. It brought tears to my eyes to see how many people were impacted by the moving of the Holy Spirit. This person, this happened before the weekend. I finally gave over that last long resistant 20% earlier in the week. So what she's saying is she was 80% committed. She made a decision to be 100% committed. And then if you remember, if you were here, as we began, I surrender all, I I asked everybody to stay seated and only stand if they were compelled to do so, not by a spouse or anybody else, but by the Holy Spirit. And she wrote this, I just immediately shot up without even thinking about it. Then I knew this is what God wanted me to do publicly, neat timing for me. And then I got a phone call Sunday afternoon. I've never been in a service like that before. It felt like revival broke out. So um, last Sunday after this service, after I greeted people, I went back into my office and it was about 20 to 1 and I was just sitting at my, in my office, my chair behind my desk and Beth was with her parents. Her dad had a procedure so she wasn't here and I could tell that everybody had left the building. I heard the door close, and then it was just quiet, and I was just sitting at my desk. Just, I, don't, I couldn't even put into words. I have never experienced what happened last weekend in 30 years of ministry, and so I was just sitting in it, just soaking. And then I heard the door open, and I could tell somebody had come back into the building had a knock in my door, and Dale Steele, our church treasurer, came in, and he shut my door. He shared with me something that almost took my breath away. It put tears in my eyes, the tears that were already there. I got some more. And it left me speechless, which doesn't happen very often. Was that Jerry? Jerry! (laughs) Jerry Thomas, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) And I'm glad I was sitting down because I might have fallen down otherwise. And I'm glad you're sitting down because I'm going to share the same news with you. An Edgewood member who is now in glory named Edgewood as the beneficiary to an annuity in the amount of, oh, are you ready? You might want to hold on to the armrest. Man, I've never seen people so attentive before. (laughs) I'm going to try that some other time. Sorry. This member... Because this individual fully surrendered to Christ, gave Edgewood over $600,000. After what had happened in our services, I didn't even know what to say. I think I said, hope I said, praise God. I think I did. Because all glory to him. And then I just started laughing. Out of joy. 
at that generosity. The deacons are praying about how best to steward this gift, but if if it goes toward our mortgage, it will leave a remaining balance of approximately $570,000. And yeah, as part of our everyone vision, so remember this year we've been focusing on everyone, everyone engaged, everyone serving, everyone growing, everybody going with the gospel to the glory of God. Uh, We've been praying and aiming to pay off our mortgage at the end of next year, I wonder if God is going to move among his people so it gets paid off even sooner. And perhaps he's tugging at your own heart to give toward Grow Time. That's the name of our expansion and renovation project or to make Edgewood one of your beneficiaries. Can you imagine what we could do for the kingdom without mortgage payments every month? So you guys, most of you know that Ray Pritchard is my mentor. He's a good friend of mine. Beth was out of town. I I had to share this with somebody. So I sent Ray a note, and I told him. This is what he said, and I want to read it. Christians know that something's up. Something is going on in the world, in our culture, and the spiritual realm. The response at Edgewood perfectly illustrates that. Something's up. Something's up. No one can say exactly what it is or what it means or what will come next, but if ever there was a time for Christians to get our minds right, this is it. Indeed, God is doing something special right now, and it's time for us, church, to get our minds right, to be all in, not 70% committed or 80 or 90 or 95, but 100% committed. Because we've been praying Psalm 85, 6 this year. God, will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Could it? be happening right now? Oh, Lord, make it so. Revive your people that we might rejoice in you. This past Tuesday, we have staff meeting every Tuesday afternoon, and normally we meet in the conference room. And this week I asked for all the staff to come here in the worship center and meet, and I read those that list of like 25 responses to this past weekend, and then I asked everyone to spread out. And there were team members all over this room praying for you praying for what God wants to do today through his word for his glory. So know that you've been prayed for. And we asked him to revive us again. God, we pray that right now, that you would revive us again. And Lord, that's deeper than just being excited or have an emotional response. No, Lord, we pray that you would move by your spirit in and among us, that we would confess sin, that we would turn from our backslidden lives, that we would be done with empty religion, that we'd be done with just going through the motions, that we'd be done with superficial spirituality. But Lord, that you would do your work in us, that we would be different, that you would change us, And by your spirit that you would blow through each of our lives and through the lives of this church and every church here in this community and around the globe. Lord, do that. Our world is in desperate need. And Lord, we offer ourselves, we surrender as a church to you and pray, Lord, that you would do uh, whatever you want to do. Not what we would manipulate or create on our own. No, Lord, what you want we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So all of that was before the message. <laughs> but I sensed we needed to have some space to celebrate what God is doing. So here's a question. Does the Bible ever feel like a puzzle 
to you. You open up the Bible and you might read about Abraham and you might remember a few things about Abraham and then you come across the book of Numbers and the book of Leviticus and you're like, ooh, all these laws and rules and sacrifices and you're like, oh, there's the Ten Commandments and, and then you're reading about the flood and then you learn about some of the minor prophets and you go, Hosea, what's that about? And you have all these different pieces in your mind and then you go over to the New Testament and you hear different parables about from Jesus and different stories and teaching and then you see the church growing through the book of Acts and read different letters and you're coming to different um, learning different names and locations and you get to the book of Revelation and you're like whoa what's that all about do you ever wonder if there's an overarching theme an overarching story if you will Well, not only that, for some of us, the Bible's not only just a pile of pieces. For some of us, we have missing pieces. You ever put a puzzle together and you you can't find one piece? For some of us, we ignore parts of the Bible. They're missing pieces to us, especially those things we don't really want to hear. Oh, it gets complicated because for some of us, we've added pieces pieces we add things we've talked about that before kind of salad bar theology we pick what we want we add stuff from that worldview here we hear something over here oh this guy said something on the internet must be true and so we add all that and we have this amalgamation all these pieces into the mix Greg Kokel writes this, even with all the right pieces, few Christians have ever assembled their puzzle in an accurate way to make sense of the whole thing. Now, if you're a puzzle person, you know there's a trick, he writes. You look at the cover. You look at the cover to see how the different pieces go together. Uh, He writes... You look at the cover, seeing the whole thing at once helps you know where the individual parts fit in. Friends, the Bible is one book with God as its author. It's made up of 66 books written by 40 different human authors over a span, get this, of over 1,500 years, and it's written in three different languages on three different continents. But the Bible is this unified collection of books that shares a common storyline. One of Francis Schaeffer's most memorable sayings was that Christianity does not start with Jesus saves you from your sins. It starts with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Apologist Nancy Percy says something similar. It's perfectly true that Jesus came to save us from that deforming disorder called sin, but starting with that is like going into a movie theater halfway through the film. You don't know who the characters are. You can't figure out the plot, and you're constantly guessing at the events leading up to that point. Friends, settle this. In a real sense, the Bible It's not about you. It's all about God. You're not the hero of the story. God is. Now, some see the Bible as about themselves. Others view the Bible as just, well, just a list of rules and regulations of do's and don'ts. But at its core, the Bible is the story about God's glory and the unfolding grace of the gospel. And the Bible contains the only true worldview because it is the only view of reality in which all the pieces fit together. Here's our main idea. The story of God is all about the glory of God. A couple years ago, I asked for some feedback on Facebook from people who like putting puzzles together. I wasn't prepared for the response. 
Within 24 hours, 116 people commented. People like doing puzzles. (laughs) Here are the three most helpful suggestions when putting a puzzle together. First, build off the four corner pieces. Uh, I got to share something here. So this is a thousand piece puzzle. I asked Sheila Kershack if she had any puzzles. Sheila has everything. So if you need anything, start with Sheila because then I'd have to go buy a puzzle. So Sheila gave me this puzzle. So now it's late in the day on Friday and I'm thinking it would be really nice to find these four corner pieces. And so I went into Marie Guyton's office and I said, hey, Marie. She goes, hi, Brian. I said, are you busy? And I could tell she was. She said, yeah, I'm working on something. And I said, okay. And I just left. And then I heard Marie say, do you need anything? (laughs) And I said, well, I have this. And she said, I'll gladly do it. And so Marie, thank you. She waded through all these 1,000 pieces to find the four corner pieces. That's an illustration of the challenge that we have and the joy we have. Find those four corner pieces and the puzzle begins to make sense. Next, find the central subject and keep referring back to the big picture. These are helpful tips when trying to make sense of the Bible. As we discover the four corner pieces, find the central subject and keep referring back to the big picture because Christianity is not just another Worldview. It's not just one of many to choose from. No, it is the one true story of reality resonating deep within each person it touches. It is true for all times, for all peoples, and at all places. The biblical narrative outlines how God is the creator, how he responds to our fallenness, and how he is working to reconcile the world to its intended purpose. Within this meta-narrative or big story, we see how God is directing history and he'll ultimately defeat all opposition. The Bible provides answers to life's fundamental questions and offers a vision for true human flourishing. So a meta-narrative is this grand story that explains and provides a context for understanding and explaining all other stories. Got Questions says, a meta-narrative speaks of absolute universal truth, while an individual narrative speaks of, we hear this all the time, what is true for me and gives meaning to my life. Uh, This unfolds in Ephesians chapter 1, making known to us the mystery of his will according to, so God's got a purpose. He's at work, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. Now, what's that purpose? To unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. These four words capture the narrative arc of the entire Bible. Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. It's helpful to understand the Bible as one grand story of redemption where God is the main character. He created everything and he created us. Humans decided to go their own way by deliberately disobeying God, causing separation with God and for corruption to be unleashed throughout the world. God provided a solution for our sin by sending Jesus Christ to die on the cross and to be raised on the third day. And he will ultimately restore creation to the perfect image he first intended. Now, In his book, The Story of Reality, Greg Kokel argues that a true worldview must answer these four worldview questions. And as you observe these questions, in your own mind, think, how does the Bible address these four questions? Where did we come from? What is our problem? What is the solution? And how will things end for us? Almost every good story has these four parts. 
It has a beginning which sets the stage, which tells you who the main characters are and how the story gets rolling. Then something goes wrong and eventually this conflict gets corrected and the wrong gets fixed. Finally, the parts of the plot resolve themselves into a satisfying ending. The Christian narrative is different from all other stories because it doesn't start with once upon a time. No, it starts with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Bible is not a fable. It's not fiction. It's factual. It's accurate because it's the real reality. It's the mega narrative of the way the world really is. So creation tells us how things began and where everything came from. The fall describes the problem, the big problem problem so you see creation genesis 1 and 2 you get to chapter 3 sin and then you see its effects all throughout scripture redemption gives us the solution which is jesus christ and restoration describes what the world will look like once the repair takes place when i was working on this sermon this week i was at a coffee shop a guy came up to me and he He kind of looked at me, he smiled, I smiled at him, and he looked at my table. I had a a table there, and I had my Bible open, I had notes everywhere, I had my laptop, and he kept looking at the table, and he's like, what are you doing? What, What are you working on? And I smiled inside, and I said, Lord, thank you for this opportunity. So I told him I was working on four words to describe the entire storyline of the Bible. He looked quizzical. He's like, and then he offered his own suggestion. He said, in God we trust? (laughs) I told him that was a pretty good answer. And then I had the opportunity to go over creation that God created us and he loves us. And that we have a problem. That problem is sin. And that he sent his son, Jesus, to pay the price for our sin. And he was raised from the dead on the third day. And Jesus is going to make all things right after the day of judgment. He said he found those to be helpful. I was able to bridge into the gospel and invited him to church. So one reason we're going over this is so that we get these four key elements, these four key corner pieces in our minds because it will help us understand the Bible and will help us be able to communicate the Bible to those who don't understand it. See, one reason the message of Christianity no longer makes sense to people in our pluralistic society is because they're not familiar with the starting point. Concepts like sin and salvation, well, they don't make much sense to a lot of people. Think with me about the Apostle Paul's approach in the book of Acts when he talked to Jewish people. He could tie into their longing for a coming Messiah. He could reference things from the Old Testament. But when speaking to pagan Gentiles with multiple worldviews, it was imperative to begin at a more foundational level. And that's precisely the situation the Apostle Paul faced when he came to the city of Athens. I have been in this passage several times before. We need to come back to it because it is like the premier passage for how we can communicate the gospel in, in, while we're around people with different world views. So I invite you to turn to Acts chapter 17. Listen as I read verses 16 to 18. Now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens. So he had been bounced out of Berea. He had to leave. He went to Athens, this beautiful, well-known city. He was in Athens waiting for the rest of the team to catch up. When Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So what did he do? Well, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews And the devout person, so he went where the religious people were, those with an Old Testament background, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? 
Would you observe, instead of being impressed with what Paul saw in this beautiful city, verse 16 says, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. That phrase, full of idols, means the city was covered with or under idols. There were gobs of gods everywhere. One ancient writer estimated there were 30,000 gods in the city, making it easier to bump into an idol, a false religion, to bump into an idol than an individual. When the weather's nice, I like to get up early on Sundays and go for a prayer run. Um, I'm listening to Voice of the Martyrs while I'm running, and I run down Kennedy Drive in Moline, and I first start at Homewood Evangelical Free Church. I'm in their parking lot. I know Pastor Mark and Andy, and they are gospel guys. I pray for Homewood as they proclaim the gospel. Then I come out of that parking lot, and I go into Christ the King Catholic Church's parking lot, and I'm praying there that they would understand God's grace and the glory of the gospel. I was raised Catholic, so my heart is for Catholics to come to know Jesus. And then I leave that parking lot, and I go in the parking lot of North Crest Calvary Baptist Church. Their senior, their pastor just retired. I'm praying for them that God would lead them to a new pastor. I'm praying they'll be faithful in their proclamation of the gospel. And then I cross the street and I go into the parking lot of the Mormon church. And I'm praying there some warfare prayers. I'm I'm praying that they would understand grace. And then I'm in the parking lot of the Greek Orthodox church. and, And then I end at the Muslim mosque. And often when I'm in that parking lot, I'm feeling heaviness but I'm also feeling boldness as I pray. And while I'm in that parking lot today, the podcast I was listening to, there's a a missionary in a Muslim country who is describing how millions of Muslims are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And it hit me. You and I live in Athens today. We live surrounded by all these different world views. Now, they might not always be obvious, but when you talk to somebody, when you observe somebody, you can see it. So that word for provoked is where we get the word seizure from. Paul was so morally shocked when he saw all this idol worship, his insides convulsed. He was angry. He was agitated. He was deeply distressed about the depth of their depravity. Has that ever happened to you? You see something and you're like, "Ah." you hear something on the news, you read something. It happened to me this week, something on my news feed. It was repulsive, it was revolting, it was repugnant. I felt nauseous. I didn't go looking for it, it was just there. My guess is you've had to look away. I hope you look away. One pastor put it like this, if you're not filled with indignation, you will not have courage to do what Paul did. But if you only have indignation, you won't have the gentleness that you need. Some time ago, I was behind a car filled with bumper stickers. You ever seen a car like that? It's not just on the bumper. It was like on the trunk, on the back window. There were bumper stickers everywhere, and I'm trying to read them, and there were all different messages, but one jumped out at me. Here's what it said. Don't mess with me. I have more gods than you do. I got a little bit closer, and underneath were nine symbols representing these idols. It made me grieve. (laughs) Honestly, I had to fight back the temptation to speed up, roll down my window, and yell, oh yeah, my God is the maker of heaven and earth, and he's mightier than any of your so-called God. Just kidding, I didn't do that. (laughs) But I say that to say this. That's not the approach Paul took. He didn't start yelling at people. He he didn't, like, I got to get out of here. No, he didn't do that. He didn't yell at people made in the image of God. Verse 17 tells us he built bridges with those in the marketplace. And would you observe, he did it daily, every day. 
In verse 18, we're introduced to two groups of philosophers. They represent two major worldviews at that time. They were popular, and there was a lot of discussion about these. The first worldview, well, they were called the Epicureans. The Epicureans were atheists. They denied God's existence and the afterlife. They were content to just live for today. That's why I have orange glasses on. They're just out to party. They're out to have a good time. If they had a motto, it would be this. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Do you know any Epicureans in the Quad Cities? You do. Is there an Epicurean living inside of you? I mean, if you're honest, it's hard to be honest, but if you're honest, is that how you're living? To maximize pleasure and minimize pain, that's what you're all about? Well, the Stoics, well, they were pantheists. Pantheists believe everything was God and God was in everything. Stoics strive to live in harmony with nature, focusing on self-control. That's the view of their world. Their self-control, self-sufficiency, their attitude toward life was one of ultimate resignation. If they had a motto, it would be something like, grin and bear it. Apathy was regarded as the highest virtue in life. Maybe a modern-day Stoic, if you were to ask them how they're doing, getting by, just hanging out, doing nothing, just waiting for another day. Do you know anybody just going through the motions? You do. Any Stoicism in your life? Are you like, uh, I'm on autopilot. I'm flat, I'm just stumbling through life. Now, some of these proud philosophers treated Paul with utter disdain. That word babbler, I thought first when I read that, it said bubbler in Wisconsin, that's a water fountain. It's not that. Babbler is a seed picker. (laughs) Their tone, well, was one of condescension. So these learned philosophers, they see Paul and they're like, you're like a seed picker. They were condescending, rude to him. Well, let me just pause here to say, if you have the courage today to stand up for biblical truth, look out. If you say marriage is one man and one woman in a covenant for life, expect pushback. If you say There are two genders, and you were created as a male or a female when you were in your mother's womb. Hold on. If you say life begins at conception, hold on. If you say Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. He's the only way to get there. It's not by performance. It's not by penance. It's not by any other way. It's only through Jesus. You better get ready. See, they saw Paul as just like a little bird in the marketplace flitting around, pecking at seeds. So they called him a babbler. And notice, though, that some were interested They say, hey, Paul, we want to learn more about this new teaching. And so they bring him to the Areopagus. That's the highest court in Athens. Now, as we walk through this text, let's see Paul's approach as a model for us as we live on mission with the gospel among intelligent, atheistic, pleasure-seeking, self-sufficient, and apathetic people in our own lives. Paul's approach, very clear, very concise, very much to the point. The Epicureans were all about enjoying life. The Stoics focused on enduring life. Let's learn how Paul pointed them to eternal life. Let's come back to the name of this series, Unshaken and Unashamed. 
It's time for us, church, to be unshaken in what we believe and unashamed of the gospel. Psalm 62, 2, he alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I will not be greatly shaken. Romans 1, 16, for I am unashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to the Jew first and then to the Greek. Notice two things Paul does to build bridges before he shares the meta narrative or grand story of scripture. First, affirm what you can. Look at verse 22. So here's Paul. He knows what kind of environment he's in. He stands up in the midst of the Areopagus and he says, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Oh, don't miss this. He's repulsed by their idols. But he was respectful. He was respectful. What he saw nauseated him but doesn't get nasty with people made in the image of God. He didn't denounce them or attack their idolatry. In fact, he paid them a compliment. Oh, that's a good spot for us to ask a question. Do we look for ways to compliment those who are not yet Christians? Or are we looking just to show that we're right and they're wrong? Are we secretly angry with people because of how they're living? Notice what he does next. Address their needs. Verse 23. For as I passed along, I observed the objects of your worship. I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. That word observe means to behold attentively. The Athenians had created an altar to an unknown God. Here's why. They had thousands of gods, but they didn't want to leave one out because they were afraid if they leave that God out, he's going to come and cause trouble in their lives. So they created this altar to the unknown God. Paul's observing that, and so Paul says, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. (laughs) The phrase worship as unknown literally means in ignorance. It's as if he's saying, you admit there's a God you don't know. I happen to know that God, and I'm not going to proclaim him to you. So after affirming them, addressing their needs, Paul told the story of God's glory, and he focuses on these four foundational truths, creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. The story of God is all about the glory of God. Let's look at these four corner pieces of the puzzle now, creation. Paul launches into a theology lesson by taking them to the book of Genesis without them knowing he's doing that because they didn't know the book of Genesis. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. So in the midst of multiple gods, all these diverse worldviews, Paul quickly contrasted the true God with the innumerable idols. Notice how he says it, the God. There's only one God. And from there, Paul built the Christian worldview one puzzle piece at a time by focusing on how God created humans. Verse 26, everyone can be traced back to Adam. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. In verse 27, he proclaimed how God put within people a desire to know him, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. And then in verse 28, Paul made another cultural connection. He quotes from two of their pagan poets for in him we live and move and have our being as even some of your own poets have said for we are indeed his offspring in our culture it would be like using a line from a current movie or a lyric from a top song in verse 29 he established the uniqueness of the one true God who doesn't live in buildings or can be depicted by statues being then God's offspring we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone in image formed by the art and imagination of man now before moving on If you just look at Paul's message here to the Athenians, he spends most of the time on who God is and what God has done. That God exists and he's different than those idols. He's the one true God and God is the creator. That's a good word for us today because many today don't understand who God is and don't understand that God created us. Then he moves to the fall. After establishing God as creator, he introduced the idea of our deep brokenness. Notice verse 30. He calls people to repentance. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. 
Friends, there's an overemphasis on sappy, sentimental spirituality today and easy believism. Friends, we must never stop preaching repentance. We must reclaim this important doctrine. Jesus preached it, Matthew 4, 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Notice next, redemption. After establishing that everyone is a sinner in need of repentance, we must move to who Christ is and why he came. This is how Paul did. He does it very briefly. Look at the last part of verse 31. He's given assurance to all by raising him, Jesus, from the dead. The resurrection is proof Jesus is God and he is alive. He's conquered depravity. He's conquered death. And he's conquered the devil himself. And then restoration. Consider the first part of verse 31. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. Everyone will face the judgment of Jesus. The day of judgment is fixed and inescapable. Note, Paul was not afraid to speak of judgment. He did not shrink back from speaking about the truth of the resurrection, even though he knew many of his listeners would not want to hear it. He celebrated the supremacy of Christ He didn't shy away from speaking about sin and was only after laying the groundwork of who God is as creator, who we are as humans, and our relationship to him that Paul explained how sin and guilt are taken away by the Redeemer, all ultimately pointing to the ultimate restoration. Friends, as God gives you opportunity, build bridges and speak boldly for Christ. Be unshaken in what you believe and be unashamed of the gospel. Tell people that God is their creator, that sin is our problem, that Jesus died in our place, and call them to repentance in light of the resurrection because judgment is coming. Now, the responses to Paul's message are still common today. Some rejected, others were reluctant, and a few received. Many will reject, some will be reluctant, and a handful will receive. What about you? Have you been rejecting the gospel or simply reluctant? And perhaps you're ready right now to believe and receive the free gift of eternal life. If you're already a Christ follower, well, would you build bridges with people and look for ways to tell the story about God's glory and use creation, fall, redemption, and restoration as your outline? Indeed, something special is happening Make sure it's happening in your life. God, we thank you for your word. And Lord, you want to equip us, help us to be willing participants in that. Lord, for that individual who's not yet repented and trusted you for salvation, Lord, I pray by your spirit you would move right within them right now that they would cry out something like this. God, I'm a sinner and I can't save myself. I repent of how I've been living I turn to you, Jesus. I trust you. I believe and I receive. Come into my life. Save me from my sins. Make me into the person you want me to be. Thank you for raising from the dead. Lord, give me that power now to live fully surrendered to you. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen.